first scripture passage this morning is Exodus 24:16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now from Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't get a chance to, before I begin today's sermon, to introduce a new member of our worship team, Max Herwig, who's on percussion. Uh, very randomly, uh, like I, I got a text message from him, hey, I, I heard that you're leading worship. Do you need a drummer? I'm like, yes. So uh, thank you so much, Max, for filling in this Sunday. Um, well, it is an honor to be with you again in the book of Mark. And as we are nearing the cross even further, three weeks away, from Palm Sunday, four weeks away from Easter. Uh, the book of Mark, actually two weeks away from Palm Sunday, now I think about it. Uh, the book of Mark is going to inaugurate this pathway to the cross with this story that we see here in the Transfiguration. Um, now, perhaps this story is largely igno ignored in our own personal studies, mainly because it all seems very confusing as to what is happening here. Uh, Jesus has a transfiguration, his clothes turn white, all of a sudden Elijah and Moses are hanging out, they're doing a podcast together. It just seems really strange to us about what is actually going on here. And so today we are going to try to understand the heart of this message. We are, we are going to see that this leads us to understand what Christ's mission is all about. Uh, but before we do that, uh, can we pray together? Father, as we dive into your word, as we see the exalted Son of God, your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that today we would see his mission and see our mission in light of his. May your word transform and change us, your people, the bride of Christ, much in the same way that Christ was transformed, transfigured right before the disciples' eyes. We pray that the Spirit of God would show us this in your word today. And it's his name we pray these things. 
Amen. Uh, and today we start see his sermon by saying that I, I love a great mystery. May your word transform I love and change mystery us as a genre because I love guessing. I don't know about you, but what the riddle might be, or you know, who who done it, or or sort of how is this all going to come together? So, growing up, uh, I would read a lot of the Encyclopedia Brown novels. Uh, I I love watching BBC Sherlock Holmes, right, uh, as a series. I I had. A hobby growing up, as, as uh, in my middle school and high school days, I loved uh, card magic. And so I would study card magic, and I loved kind of showing mysteries to other people. So uh, it was one of, those, one of those things where it was just captivating to me. Mystery was, was always powerful because it opened up your imagination to new things. Uh, good mysteries had this very satisfying conclusion, uh, made you realize that everything that you had seen, every detail, every connection point was, was right there in front of your eyes at the very beginning. Think of the movie The Sixth Sense, right? It forces you to think about everything that you have just seen, everything you've ever experienced, and realize that the truth was staring at you all along. Our relationship with Christ is often a great mystery. Uh, some of us are frustrated because it seems like we've been trying a lifetime to figure it out. Others might be bored because they think that they have the mystery solved entirely. But as we're about to find out in our text today, the truth revealed to us is often something that we miss. And when we see it in a new way, it makes us pause and wonder about the Christ who is right there in front of us all along. How we look back on our lives and see ourselves in light of his radiance. So we're just going to talk about two things today as we unravel uh, today's passage in Mark. Uh, the mystery of exaltation, and two, the mystery of humiliation. Uh, the mystery of exaltation and the mystery of humiliation. So let's, let's first unpack the mystery of exaltation. So we've entered into chapter 9 now. Uh, in, in our sermon series in Mark. And after receiving hostility from the Pharisees and misunderstanding from his disciples, we see a turn, a shift, and the disciples are slowly beginning to understand who this rabbi is that they're following. In the passage right before our text today, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the, the anointed one of God. And, and Jesus starts telling his disciples that he must be rejected and be killed, and in three days rise again. And six days pass, and after that he says, anyone who would follow Jesus should deny himself and take up his cross and follow him, he takes three disciples with him up to the high mountain. And there we see a miracle that starts to look like Mark chapter 1 all over again, the way we started our, our sermon series. See, throughout Mark, we've been witnessing that the miracles being performed by Jesus were done on other people. Healings, the feeding of the 5,000, etc. But here in chapter 9, we see only one other instance of a miracle being performed on Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus was the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry where we see the Father speak to Christ that this is his Son, with him he is well pleased. And here in Mark chapter 9, this is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry to the cross, where we see echoes of what we saw at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, only this time there is this physical change to Jesus. His clothes become radiant and white. Jesus is exalted in such a manner that he is radiating the glory 
of God. Now, this, the mystery of this exaltation might be difficult because we didn't grow up with a Jewish background, but for Jesus' closest disciples, James, John, and Peter, this connection is suddenly becoming to click. The mystery unravels. You see, the high mountain in the Old Testament was a place of great significance. It was Mount Sinai where Moses had an encounter with God that transformed Moses' face to shine because he held the glory of God in Exodus 34, signifying Moses' role as the appointed leader of God's people to the promised land after God called him out after six days to himself and present the law to God's people, our Old Testament reading for today. It was Elijah who went up to Mount Horeb to encounter the comfort of God as the glory of the Lord encouraged him once again to renew his prophetic ministry. It was the glory of God that transformed him as he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So here we see Jesus going up to a high mountain and encountering a moment where the glory of God is radiating from him in such a way that his disciples would see these Old Testament connections. And just in case the disciples aren't getting it, who comes to, to cement that this is what it is? Elijah and Moses appear right before them, and Jesus begins talking with them. You see, the presence of these prophets of the Lord, the, the paragon of faithfulness to God's people, the heroes of the faith, as James, John, and Peter would have understood it, they are right there talking with this rabbi from Nazareth. Jesus, in their eyes, is the exalted one because Jesus is connected to God's prophetic witness all throughout biblical history. Jesus, in other words, is the fulfillment of everything that Scripture teaches. This is a key for all of us as Bible-believing, Christ-centered people of God for us to reiterate over and over and over again how you read your Bible is that you must see that Christ is the fulfillment of every text. We often, as the Western church, rush to application way too quickly, all right? We look at the Bible, we read it, and we go, great, what does this have to do with me? And that is good, and we should do it. But the mistake would be is to think that that is all what your Bible is for. Your Bible is there to teach you about how Christ is the fulfillment of all that we see. Christ is central to all the themes of the Old Testament and the New. Christ is the center of all places in which the Scripture must turn. It has no comprehensibility outside of Christ. If you're reading your Bible just for application, you will never read First Chronicles. You just won't do it, right? You will never read Leviticus. You just won't do it. Why? Because you don't see how it is pointing to Jesus. It's otherwise a book with a mystery that leaves itself unrevealed. It's an unsatisfying mystery if the Bible is about you. But if it's about Christ, then the relationship of Scripture orbits around everything that Christ has done. Christ is the great king that will bring about the restored kingdom of Israel that they had been hoping for. Christ is the Lord of the covenant that Abraham broke and the people of God could not keep. Christ is the true and better Adam. Christ is the suffering servant in Isaiah. Christ is the redeemer kinsman in Ruth. Christ is the restored temple built again in three days. Christ is the perfect and final judge who will restore us fully in peace and Sabbath. Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. 
And everything that is in place in the course of Bible's history points us back to this Jesus Christ is the exalted one. So this changes everything with the disciples and how they relate to Jesus. And as this mystery begins to unpack, suddenly the disciples have this moment where they are absolutely terrified. You see, they thought they had a grasp of this person that was there right before them. They thought they knew who they were dealing with. And suddenly they realize they have no clue. Now this is probably echoes in our own life and faith. Our covenant children. Um, we praise God that you are being exposed to know Jesus. Uh, but let me speak to you uh, kids here. Uh, there will come a day where you will realize more fully in power and in truth who Jesus is. And what power he has over your life how he comforts you in your struggles, and what he has done for you by dying on the cross for your sins and rising again to new life. And we're, we're, we as adults, we are, we are just so excited for that day when you come to know Jesus more and it just clicks. And you will suddenly see this Jesus more clearly. Your relationship with the Lord will never be the same again. It will change you to become a more mature son and daughter of the Most High God. It will be cooler than anything else in your world right now. Cooler than Bluey, cooler than Mario Kart, cooler than anything else you could ever imagine, I promise. And we can't wait for that mystery to be revealed to you. Adults, this transformative power is something that will happen again and again in your life as you walk with Jesus. Jesus. Um, we think, as adults, uh, we think we got them all figured out. And there will come a moment in your life where he will reveal more and more about how glorious he really is, how exalted he really is. And he'll become more radiant in your triumphs. He'll become more radiant in your struggles, in your pain, in your deepest wounds. Jesus will reflect his glory and it will leave you in awe. You know, sometimes... We walk the faith with a canned version of Christ. Right? We, we think we've got them all in this, figured out in this jar. And sometimes we take it open and we look at it and we go, oh, that's really nice. And treat Christ like an aquarium that amuses us from time to time but never truly transforms us. But it's only when we go up with Christ and allow him to reveal who he is and this glory demonstrates Christ's exaltation and, and, and suddenly our hearts can't help to worship him, to be transformed by him. But we're not going to get that mystery right the first time, kids and adults. And this is certainly evident in Peter's response here in verse 5. Now, let me explain something to you about Peter that I, I think that is, is appropriate to hear. You see, Peter has what we call in uh, Korean culture uh, really bad nunchi. All right, um, now, for those of you who are not Korean in this room, let me explain what nunchi is. Uh, nunchi is kind of a hard word to, to define. Nunchi is the ability to understand uh, people in social settings. It's, it's to capture the feeling of everyone around you as you walk into a room. It's, it's the ability to know and, and empathize and feel with collectively what's happening with other people. So in other words, if you have really bad nunchi, You'd be walking into a room, seeing a bunch of people being sad, and you would just be like, hey, guys, what's up? Huh? All right, let's make everyone happy. That nunchi is the friend that hears that you're on a diet, 
and he offers you dessert, right? Okay, all right, bad nunchi is the person who's in a group sharing this situation, and this is the person who dominates the discussion and is like the only one talking. These are bad nunchis. You simply do not get it. You never want to be known as the person with really bad nunchi. Now, Maybe you know someone in this room that has bad nunchi. Please do not look at them as we're discussing this analogy together. Uh, maybe because you're a humble person, uh, you know that you are the person with really bad nunchi, and that's all right. You're in good company. All right, you really are. And Peter, out of all the disciples, has the worst nunchi of all, and nowhere is that more evident than right here in verse 5, exhibit A. Look at Peter's response. Rabbi, it's, it's, it's good that we're here. Let's, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, what is Peter insinuating here? He, he's actually, it seems very well intended, he's trying to recreate Exodus all over again. He's trying to set up the tent of meeting where God will, again, rest his presence with the prophets and his people and, and when doing so, bring about the Sabbath rests that the disciples are hoping to receive. And he doesn't wish to offend Moses and Elijah who are right there or especially Jesus. So he, he says, let's set up three tents. The tents here are to say to Jesus, you are on the same level as Elijah, and you are on the same level as Moses. The glory of the Lord is revealed, so let's just get to the fun bits. Let's get to the Sabbath rest. Sounds pious. Sounds worshipful. Sounds like a great idea. But it's not the mission of Christ to end his ministry on the high mountain. And it's certainly not the kind of exaltation that Christ is trying to exhibit. You see, the mystery of exaltation is that Christ is not just another Moses. Christ is not just another Elijah. He's greater than them all. And Peter doesn't get it. And his actions of worship demonstrate that he's longing for Sabbath rest before it's Jesus' time to bring it. He's trying to hurry along Jesus' mission so that Peter can get the rewards of following Christ. He believes the mystery of exaltation finds its place immediately in the happy ending, right away. Now, this isn't just Peter and his bad nunchi. This is ours as well. The mystery will evade us in our walk with Christ from time to time. We won't always get it right. We will try to find new ways to worship God and ways that God didn't want us to worship Him. We will show our piety to God, but do not do so in a way that is actually trying to make it about our own benefit, maybe our own pride. We believe that the exalted Christ surely must mean that nothing bad should ever happen. We need the mystery of Christ revealed deeper. So, just to make everything even more clear about the mystery, at this moment, a cloud overshadows the disciples and Jesus just like God did on Mount Sinai and Moses, and the revealing of God's presence tells them everything that they need to know. And they hear it. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. He is the word of truth, so they should listen to him. And Elijah and Moses are gone. They don't even stand with Christ anymore because Christ stands alone. And what does Christ have to say about the mystery of exaltation? 
And this is where we get to our second point today, is the mystery of humiliation. You see, Christ has already alluded to portions of his humiliation uh, before in chapter 8, that the Son of Man should suffer and die and that he would rise again in three days. But, but now we see Jesus having just been exalted in the same vein as Moses and Elijah, begin to see how the consummation of his exaltation would come about. It would come through his suffering, just as it has come through the sufferings of prophets before him. So Jesus commands the disciples silence as they're coming down from the mountain, which, by the way, to me, seems like one of the hardest things to do. Have you ever tried to keep a really good secret for any long period of time, and you've just seen so, something so incredible and miraculous and glorious? How are you going to keep that to yourself? But, but see, the reason why Jesus asked the disciples to keep this messianic secret until the Son of Man has risen from the dead is because they do not yet fully grasp or understand what's happening. Christ's time has not yet come, nor would they fully understand the nature of what the exaltation would require. So, disciples, as they're walking down the mountain, they begin to question themselves about what this rising of the dead might mean, showing that even when they hear the voice of God, they still don't get it. They still don't understand what Jesus' humiliation must mean. The death of their Messiah even though Jesus has told them it would happen, even though the mystery is right there in front of them, Christ in his radiance, they still can't understand that the Messiah would be the suffering servant. You know, I think this is an interesting reflection for us here today because it goes to show you that even when God speaks directly to us, right, and we think, oh, it would be so obvious if he just told me, uh, we, like the disciples, are still veiled in full comprehension, still awaiting the appointed time. We don't imagine the life of following Christ to contain the kinds of humiliation that Christ would face, the kinds of physical, emotional, and spiritual turmoil that brings us to question God's own very words, just like the disciples did. But consider what stands right in front of us in the gospel narratives themselves. Think about what Jesus has said. Jesus tells us that if we wish to follow him, we must take up our cross. Jesus rejects those who would wish to make him a second priority in his life. Jesus saves his harshest words for Pharisees that would want to use him as a parlor trick or to use Jesus as an intellectual inferior. Jesus repeatedly makes his own life a demonstration of what the Christian walk would look like. Being poor. No place to lay his head, followed by people who can't or refuse to understand him, facing rejection, being told to leave cities, being rejected by his hometown. The mystery of Christ is that much of his life looks, doesn't look like the victorious, exalted king who should have it all and be living it up. The mystery of Christ is that he is humiliated all throughout his life. This is what Jesus encounters. This is how Jesus lives. And so if that's the case, then consider what does this mean for us as Jesus' disciples? This leads into this discussion of Elijah by Jesus 
The disciples are wondering about uh, Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5. We could have this up on the screen. If, if you're wondering what this discourse is, why the disciples are talking about Elijah, it's this. They're, they're, they're remembering the prophecy of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And then in the next chapter, we see, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they're, they're looking at this and they're thinking, is this the time? Many are thinking of the fact that Elijah would be this person in the flesh. After all, Elijah was carried away. He didn't die. He was carried away in a carried a fire, surely it would seem itself that logical, it would seem logical that Elijah would return. But you see, Elijah was just a prototype of the messenger that would come and declare that Christ would come. The true fulfillment of the role of Elijah was just a mystery veiled to show the life of John the Baptist. Look at Matthew 11, 11 through 14, in Jesus' own words. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So think about John the Baptist's own humiliation. Think about what this messenger of Christ, as he's preaching about Christ's exaltation, experience. What is the mystery of John the Baptist's humiliation? He came from the wilderness. He was imprisoned. He suffers a, a wrongful death. Martyrdom for proclaiming the message of Christ. Is this really the kind of humiliation and suffering that the messengers of Christ must face? Is this truly what it means to follow Jesus? You see, Christ's disciples are wholly unprepared at this stage of Mark to understand that their lives would be lived in such a fashion. They might be thinking what we're all thinking. That Christ is the means to an end of a perfectly lived life. Christ, surely he will make all my physical pains go away. Christ, surely give me the wisdom to be successful. Surely Christ will give me the wisdom of a perfectly managed life and schedule. Christ will give me the heart to serve others perfectly. So much so that when I help others, they will be healed of all their afflictions and they will immediately turn to Jesus. Christ will not surely inconvenience me or my plans that I've made. In fact, Christ will make sure that everything I do is executed to perfection. You see, how easy it is, easy for us to just only look at exaltation and not realize what it means for us as Christians to live in humiliation. The thought that Christ is calling us to consider a life that may have to suffer on his behalf. It's no wonder that just like the disciples, we can fall into the same trap. Um, I've been a part of this group of individuals who gather together for discussion on Christianity and religion every week. Uh, it's this group of individuals that uh, come from all different kinds of backgrounds. So on the Zoom call, we will see, you know, Jewish rabbis, um, 
atheists, secularists, uh, journalists who are just trying to, to know more about Christianity. And, and in this, we are trying to understand another one's worldviews in a, in a place where we're not trying to accuse, uh, condemn, mislabel, or slander one another, uh, but to hear each other out. To hear how we've formulated each other's worldviews and to come to a better understanding. And, and something uh, that one of the uh, more secular liberals uh, said this week in the call hit me home in such a rich way that I want to pass it on to all of you. Uh, he noted, uh, you know, it seems like Christians in the public sphere, uh, they seem to miss out on the fundamental teaching that Christ claimed that they would be rejected marginalized and oppressed for the beliefs. And he found it astonishing that Christians seemed so shocked when this would actually happen. And he, and he said this, and he posed this question, and he says, hey, um, all the Christians on the call, why does it seem like Christians are so hostile to the idea that they should have to face persecution? <laughs> all the Christians stayed silent for a second as we were thinking through that. We were kind of nodding our heads. And then one of the Christians on the call responded, and he said, you know, the reason for this is that Christians often don't know our own history here in America. That in being the dominant religion and influence on the politics, ethics, and practice of life in this country, uh, they have not realized the cause of Christ. I could even fathom the idea that Christians would have to live in the marginal spaces of our society. That we would, like the Son of Man presented here in verse 12, of our text here today, uh, that we would have to receive humiliation, that we would have to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And so because we have reached this turning point, Christians now in 2023 believe that we have quote unquote lost the culture, spiteful, angry, rather than consider that this might actually be what Jesus is calling us to in the first place. And so instead of looking to the heavenly hope that we have in Christ, instead awaiting the future exaltation, instead of building the kingdom of God that God has called us to here, uh, Christians instead have turned their eyes to the culture war. And that is how we believe that Christians stay relevant. Where instead, maybe God is calling us to consider what it might mean for us to not win the culture war, but take up our cross follow him. I won't lie to you, this is a hard teaching for us, because it might appear to seem as Jesus saying our suffering is the way that Christianity should be, that the life of the Christian is to only be in humiliation. But, but remember what we talked about earlier. If we follow our King Jesus, what we will see is that the humiliation of the Christian leads to the exaltation. Our humiliation, these earthly bodies, these hard and difficult times, these physical, mental, inside and outside forces that weaken us, that wreck us, these are but just a shadow of the eternity we will have being united to Christ in perfect harmony. We will one day have renewed and restored bodies. We will one day weep no more. We will one day be given a place in the presence of God, just like Moses, just like Elijah, just like Jesus, and we will be transformed into a new Jerusalem, as Revelation 21 says, in, in radiating the glory of God. 
But until that day, and this is what I believe Christianity has to offer better than any other worldview that exists today. Until that day, the Christian hope is that our humiliations, our sufferings, our deepest pains are not inconsequential or meaningless. Our sufferings aren't for nothing. Our long struggles with mental illness do not have uselessness. Rather, if we consider and believe what is happening to Jesus here, our humiliation will speak to the greater glory of God, to our friends and our neighbors and those who do not yet know him. Our humiliation, just like Christ's humiliation, leads us to radiate the glory. And probably one of the best books on the treatment of evil and suffering in the world today, uh, D.A. Carson has written this uh, book called How Long, O Lord. Uh, He dismantles many of the reasons that Christians have been told about why suffering is necessary, but he also gives warnings to the Christian expectation that suffering should end too soon. He writes this, if we could have this quote here. Uh, We live in a fast-paced world. And we want God to respond with the same efficiency that we expect from high-speed computers. We are not inclined to think through delays in Scripture. What is promised us then is that in the midst of such misery, we may be assured that God is at work for the good of those who love Him. That story of promise has to be taken on faith. Faith that is strong because of the proof God has already given us of His love for us. The proof that is nothing less than the gift of His Son. Friends, when we see that our exaltation, our longing for heaven, is realization that that is only found in the humiliations we must suffer and realize, then the mystery of humiliation will show us our exalted king. And our lives will be transformed, not so that Christians could lead the happy life, but that Christians could lead the joyous life. Uh, Do you know how we know this? Now, normally, uh, I, I abhor it when pastors use languages, uh, the original languages in sermons, because the translations you have in your Bible are to be trusted from learned scholars who know more Greek than any pastor could ever could. But, um, but, but here's something that I think is incredible about this word, transfiguration. The word here is describing the glory of God, changing Christ to radiate his glory, but that exact same word is used to, in a very important verse that, many of you, verse that many of you might have studied in the Christian life. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may be discerned what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word for transformed is the exact same word transfiguration. In presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, in our own humiliation, we see the cross ever more clearly. We see the will of God. We see his truth. We see the suffering service. We see the price of our redemption. We see the Father's plan unfold. We see many sons come to glory. We see Christ as the exalted one. The mystery fully revealed. And so let us await until the day where it will be finally made all too clear for us. Let's pray together.